This is Dr. Eric Morrow. Welcome to this week's edition of On Politics. We're glad you could join us this week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM, uh, where we come to you each week on Sundays at noon. Uh, But we're also available uh, online uh, through SoundCloud and also where you download your podcast. And then you can also join us on Facebook for related articles and information connected to the stories that and the the information and the interviews that we do uh, each week. So we want to welcome you to this edition. As you know, over the last few weeks, uh, we have been covering different facets of the current COVID-19 pandemic as we've looked at public education and the impact there. Last week, uh, we had uh, Jeff Sanford and Bill Leverton on to talk about the economic issues and impact Uh, right here in Stephenville and in the region. And this week we turn to looking at an area that could not have been impacted more than any any other area. I mean, this is just the, as we've seen and and as many people have have seen, this has been so very, very challenging uh, in certain parts of the world and and in certain parts of this country. And and that is our healthcare system, that is our healthcare professionals, uh, that, is, that is the, the, the demand on services and hospitals and equipment and supplies and medicine that, that has gone on as we've seen uh, various hotspots of uh, the COVID-19 virus around the, the country. And as we know, and looking at all of this and looking at the data that, that uh, this is going to move around for a while, uh, we're still learning things uh, and, and seeing what is happening as we attempt to adjust uh, what we're doing uh, socially. Uh, politically, but, uh, but certainly in terms of uh, healthcare and combating this, and also addressing all of the different variations and aspects that are coming out of this regarding people's health and the impact that this virus has. So today we are very excited to welcome uh, Dr. Samantha Pell, uh, who is a faculty member here at Tarleton. Uh, she's been here for over part of the Tarleton family for over 22 years. Uh, she has a tremendous amount of experience that she brings into the classroom, uh, having been a registered nurse for 33 years, uh, a family nurse practitioner for 13 years, and being involved with the Stephenville Medical uh, and Surgical Center here uh, for uh, almost a decade. Uh, she has, has had a tremendous uh, amount of experience in, in, in kind of looking at this and, and, and talking about uh, what people are facing on the front lines, what challenges they're seeing, uh, but then also what are other uh, issues uh, that we need to be aware of uh, that are being addressed and having to be uh, uh, having to be dealt with uh, in this pandemic. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Pell. We're glad to have you uh, on the show today. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're what you're doing right now in terms of your position here at Tarleton, uh, but then also. Um, uh, really would like for you to your, your insight into some of the challenges that we're seeing among healthcare professionals uh, and healthcare providers during this crisis. Well, currently we are teaching all of our classes online. So it's been a big move for our, the nursing faculty as well as the, the nursing students and faculty uh, to adjust to particularly the generic students to adjust from having a face-to-face classroom where we are very interactive with our students to moving to online where we don't get as much, we're not getting any FaceTime um, and we're not getting the individual attention that the, you know, students aren't getting the individual attention as much as 
they got in the classroom. So we're trying to build in ways that students are getting different individual attention and making ourselves available um, a lot of times 24 seven. Um, I teach health assessment, which is a skills class and um, primarily, and it's, it's, it's a foundation class and the fact that you need to be able to recognize if your patient, what's going, what's normal with your patient and what's abnormal with your patient and help focus what uh, you would do to help them, to intervene for them as a nurse. So uh, that class has always been, we've done a lot of that in the lab. We, we do a lot of hands-on, we do a lot of face-to-face. -face. So students are really rising to the challenge as far as um, taking the information that they've gotten in lab and moving it to self-learning outside. Um, fortunately, most students are living in situations where they have, they're with their family members or they're with um, close roommates or, or some, you know, somebody close so they can have a living um, patient, so to speak, to practice on. But uh, some of my students are fi even finding that as a challenge because they live in an apartment by themselves and they're really having to, to deal with um, not being able to practice as easily as they would have previous to this, this outbreak. And it, it affects students' confidence. It affects um, their, uh, just the, the way they apply their learning. And um, so it's, it's been a, several weeks of a lot of um, reassurance for the students, but I'm, I'm happy to say that I think that they are, are uh, handling this pressure very well and they're learning to apply this new system of learning um, to their nursing skills. We've, we've heard stories too, talking about your students, we've heard stories about students in different parts of the country that have actually been pulled into a service due to the demands on the healthcare system. Uh, of course, I look online and, and seeing that like the available hospital beds, I mean, Texas has been uh, trying to adapt to this. We still don't know what's to come in, in certain uh, areas, but uh, have we seen any of that where you have uh, students or, or, or people who are in training for healthcare professions being pulled into a service at this point? Yes, and actually governor, the governor put into effect a, um, a clause that allows nursing students to go into service sooner and um, with, with supervision, of course, uh, and, and be able to provide care for patients. Like you said, we're not seeing as much of that in Texas as we have as they are in other states because we, um, I think our climate's quite a bit different. We are more spread out in the state than, than say New York City. So we're not, we have some social distancing going on just, just the layout of the state. I, you know, I live six miles outside of town in Dublin and I can't hardly see my neighbors. So it's easy for me to social where, you know, I'm not, my apartment's not eight feet away from another door. So, um, right, right. I, yeah, so I think um, now in some of the larger cities like Houston and um, Dallas, the social distancing is more difficult, but I don't think that they've had to pull in the student use as much as, as, as what we were possibly anticipating. Right. So in, in terms of the impact of this, when we look at, uh, I, know, I know Texas, again, is, is, is different geographically. We, uh, we're seeing, though, like yesterday, I think Fort Worth, uh, announced that it, the highest level of new cases that it had seen so far. Um, what, what, you've been in this environment for, for a number of years. Um, 
we, we, we see the images on, on the news or on, on TV. We hear the stories about healthcare professionals. Uh, what are some of the, the really intense challenges that, uh, what, what, how has this changed or impacted the way that healthcare is being done uh, in, in some of these areas like our metropolitan areas here or even outside of this state where there's been uh, uh, many more cases? Well, my daughter, for instance, works in uh, Fort Worth at one of the larger hospitals, and she's an ICU nurse. And I know that they have suffered from limited resources for masks and PPE, which is personal protective uh, equipment. So even though we don't have the number of cases other states are having, we still are, those larger cities are still suffering under the inability to get a lot of the disposable supplies that they need. And um, with that comes a lot of stress for the nurses because they are so, they're concerned for their patients. Um, a lot in ICUs and the med surge floors, you know, uh, most, most of the hospitals have gone to no visitors. Well, that's difficult for um, these particularly elderly patients and young patients because they get a lot of calming effect from their family members being able to be around to explain to them and to um, calm them. And now they're in the hospital completely alone and they're working with nurses that you can't see their faces and they're completely covered up. So it is, it's more difficult to provide um, that art of caring to your patients because you're, it's, it's really made this, the situation appear more impersonal. While it's very much, where it's still very personal to the nurses, um, it it's makes the communication even more difficult. And if in the Dallas and Fort Worth area, we have a lot of patients that are from other countries. And um, so you are talking, you know, you may have a language barrier. And on top of that, then you put masks and um, face shields on and whatnot. And so not only is the language an issue before where you could use facial cues and body language, even that being um, Im impaired because of the PPE, the use of these other uh, forms of uh, protection. Right. I, I remember seeing the one of the uh, stories uh, uh, where uh, uh, nurses and doctors were taking pictures of their face and then putting it on their mask on the outside to try to at least have some level of personal recognition and interaction given the uh, the challenges of this. I mean, that, that, that has to be having been had an extended stay uh, in the hospital myself when I had heart valve replacement. I know how, how critical that is uh, to have that kind of interaction, not just with the, the staffing and, but also with the, uh, with, with family members. And that, that has to be, uh, very, very uh, difficult uh, at this point. And, and it, I would even say probably like uh, nursing facilities. I mean, that's, again, that's another area where restrictions have been put in place uh, in order to uh, uh, prevent the spread of this, especially among vulnerable populations. But uh, again, that human interaction uh, is, is very much, I think, a part, my understanding, at least my experiences of it, that healthcare is not just about delivering a, a service and and taking care of someone's uh, physical needs, but there are certainly uh, social, emotional, relational uh, elements to this. Yes, um, I I know the nursing homes because I work some hospice as well um, have completely closed down, and again, that helps with the the elderly. It helps ground them if they know that their family members are coming in. Mm -hmm. There's a, a trust issue or a trust aspect there. Um, one of the biggest 
pieces of nursing that that is that that interaction between patient and nurse and and patients will tell you more if they trust you they will show you more they will um you can get better information out of them about how they're actually doing if your patient actually trusts you um it's it it is it has impacted tremendously that aspect of caring for patients um and the nurses at the nursing homes they are feeling it because you know um they feel like they're in some ways you're almost gatekeepers in the fact that they're having to tell family members who love their their you know parents grandparents tremendously that they can't come into the nursing homes and um it's it's taking a toll as far as the stress levels go you know, from that aspect as well i've had to do a lot of um telecommunications trying to assess patients over the phone um, with a nurse in the facility because they they have done incredible um, controls in trying to protect these vulnerable patients and and the nurses have been amazing in the nursing homes trying to help uh, help us well I'm a nurse practitioner and the nurse practitioners and the doctors provide care and and provide um, assessment assessing abilities whenever um usually we go in we talk to our patients and we do it all ourselves so it's it's been a team effort all the way around um and the nurses in the hospitals the nursing homes in, in the different areas are taking on roles that they haven't had to to that they haven't had to do in the past along that line and so we're talking about the impact of of policy that are, policies that have been put in place to protect people to uh, prevent the spread of virus of the virus. Uh, I, I go to my I go to the Stephenville Medical Surgical Clinic for an allergy shot or a, a blood test or so forth. And so the the amount of people actually going to the doctor, you know, certain levels of physicians like the optometrist, uh, ophthalmologist, and dentist, and so forth have uh, under state directives have shut down for a period of time. We'll know more I think in the coming weeks about how that might be opened back up, but uh, my, the coming, you, know, you think about this and you say, okay, well, how many people are foregoing the health care that they need uh, for uh, either uh, caution uh, or maybe even fear of going to a doctor's office or to a, a, a medical clinic? Uh, and so that, that uh, certainly is a concern here. I don't, I don't know if you uh, have any uh, kind of pulse on that to say, how is health care in general being impacted uh, in that regard, where people are just saying, "Okay, I'm, I'm just going to deal with this for now," or they're not following up with checkups or other things that they may need, that means that there's a broader impact, not just the virus itself. That's incredible. I was just talking about that yesterday. Um, we are seeing in the clinics that uh, there has been, you know, where we thought that there would be a huge increase in patients being coming in to be seen. We are. Um, it's been exactly the opposite. It people have slowed down. They're not coming into the clinic, even though um, there are safeguards put into place where they're separating people that have temperatures or any other um, issues. They're putting them in a completely different area to be seen, so that they're not. But the fear of of contracting COVID, just going to a doctor's office, is real, and it it is impacting. Um, Healthcare in general, for pe- particularly people that have chronic illnesses, which are those patients that are at higher risk for the COVID. Um, I was reading some articles about uh, 
patients with uncontrolled diabetes are at higher risk for for or higher mortality rates if they do contract COVID because of um, the nature of the disease process. So if you have a patient that, say, is diabetic and they have control issues, but they're afraid to go in to be followed up for the control of their diabetes, then that is actually putting them at higher risk should they contract COVID. So it's kind of a, it is a, you know, it's, a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Um, but yeah, I was talking um, to leadership there at the, co- at the clinic yesterday about the fact that it, it, things have slowed down tremendously and um, people just aren't coming in to be seen. And while it makes sense to socially distance, if you've got a chronic illness, you still have to do those follow-ups. You still have to treat your underlying disease processes because that's something that, that has established itself in your body and has to be maintained um, for longevity. So. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, a, a, I think, a, a important point as, the, as we look at the impact of this long term, that, that uh, some of those issues are going to show up with people who uh, may, uh, out of that fear or, or caution, however they express it, is it, they're just neglecting the, uh, the care that they need uh, at this at this point in time, and so another side of that is we're talking about the, uh, the the directives, the social distancing, and so on. And and now we see that okay, we've been doing this for a month to six weeks. Uh, there are uh, calls to kind of start opening things back up a little bit. I know uh, you know we certainly see uh, the governor, others being kind of cautious and methodical about this. Um, where where do we see this impacting? Uh, do you think uh, uh, healthcare kind of going forward as we look at a, a scenario where uh, yes things may open back up, we may see this thing roll around in different ways in different places based on on geography and proximity of people. Uh, we could very well see another wave of this in the fall when we look at the flu season and the very likelihood that this will still be around um, are what, what kinds of, of, I know, I know, again, I don't want to take away from the response to the current crisis because many people are on the front lines of that and they're trying to address it and they're not, not as engaged in, okay, I'm not so much concerned about tomorrow, next week or three months from now, but there certainly has to be some discussion going on uh, as to what is a, a longer term strategy among healthcare professionals uh, in dealing with what may happen. Yes, there's. I, I see that there's going to be infection control uh, policy changes across the board. I think that they're going to, I, I really feel like um, they're going to have to start looking more at acuity um, staffing. And, and I'm from Arizona, so the acuity staffing that I saw there was very different than what we have here in Texas. And I think that there's, there may be some policy changes as far as affecting that because um, we're looking at nurses that are that are that are really uh, battling with burnout right now. Um, I have had several nursing students reach out through Facebook and other um, media, well, just in, in many different ways, thanking us for preparing them, but also talking to us and kind of getting some input as far as you know. Um, how do they deal with some of this long term, and, and what are you know, what are some ways that they can do some self care for them because they're young, and um, 
and haven't had to face this as long as some of some of, some of us others who've been in a, a you know too long or not too long but a great deal of time um i i really do feel like confession control issues are going to come up i think that we're going to start looking at at um clinics and buildings being modified in a way so that you uh so that maybe more sunlight comes in so that more because if you go back to go back to fundamentals you've got to keep things clean you've got to let the sunlight in you've got to keep things aired out and um i mean it seems funny but all of the principles that uh florence nightingale preached do apply here in a lot of respects and i feel like that in some ways we have not built uh we've moved away from some of those those premises and we'll we'll have to go back to the fundamentals and and um, this is a good, not a good reminder, but this is a reminder how important those fundamentals are across the board. Yes, that, that was one of my questions that you answered was about facilities. I mean, we just, uh, uh, there, there's, uh, to me, that, that seemed like there's going to be a, a, a very close look at how uh, this and other things that may come. I mean, this is not, uh, uh, I would say in our modern world, we we might have thought before that we were, uh, and handling other outbreaks and so on that were were more limited than this, that this would not happen. But healthcare professionals for years now have been saying there is a possibility at some point that we may have a, a pandemic level like this. And so th- this happening now is the likelihood that it's going to happen again. And, and how are um, healthcare providers and professionals uh, prepared for that? Do you, do you see uh, uh, some immediate impacts on, on the training that you do? and the guidance that you provide to your students uh, in relation to what's happening in this pandemic? I think this is giving us some opportunities to really drive home some important fundamental pieces that maybe have been more difficult in the past because it's easier to say, you know, um, when this first came out, people talked about hand washing and it was very much um, poo-pooed off by a lot of people, by, you know, a lot of the general population, you know, but hand washing is the fundamental infection control piece to all infection control. And it's more than just running your hands under a little lukewarm water and maybe with a little bit of soap, you actually have to wash your hands for a period of time and cover your entire hand and up your wrist. So this is an, this has been an opportunity for students to really see that, you know, their, your technique is important. And um, I think this is an opera. If we take this opportunity and use it to the fullest extent, we can we can use this to help um, solidify some of the theories and whatnot that we are teaching in lecture. Uh, if this, you know, um, but if this is going to make it more difficult in the fact that we're not um, we're not getting to be face to face. And I am very much a face to face teacher, and you know come here, put your hands in this, here, palpate that. And so some of those is, those are going to have to change. I'm going to have to come up with um, different strategies so that my students still get what they need and so that their patients get what they need out of them as a nurse. And um, because when it all comes down to it, it's us being able to provide good patient care. Um, and I don't mean, when I say good, I'm not talking about, you know, just, you know, big patient care. I'm talking about a patient care. We want to give the the best patient care possible to it that, that's possible at any given time under any given circumstances. 
Uh, and that that's certainly uh, uh, I mean, that's not just admirable, but that's the kind of the nature of a lot of people who are out there in the healthcare profession, because this and, and really in a lot of public service that uh, uh, that are now on the front lines uh, dealing with this. And I uh, wanted to ask a question about this because we do uh, we touched on a few things about policy. This we do a lot of that on this show. Uh, we, we it's not about uh, political partisanship or anything like that. It's more about information, knowledge, engagement at a substantive level with critical issues that are that are happening. And, you know, the healthcare industry or what we'd say professions and, and providers, I, I know in the policy realm and political realm, we use industry, but it's it's really much more than that. It, it's, it's, as you said, there's a personal uh, level and aspect to that, but it is a very highly regulated uh, uh, profession and, and, and uh, service because of uh, dealing with the matters that it deals with in terms of health and life and death and uh, privacy issues and and so on and and so here in the middle of this pandemic we see the uh, the challenges of navigating that between uh, uh, government officials and political leaders who are not experts in healthcare uh, who are not uh, physicians they've not spent time in this environment uh, providing services and then those who who do that and those who give research and time and attention uh, to looking at the best practices and kind of the way forward through through a, a, a crisis like this. And I just wanted from your experience, you've, you've been in, in the healthcare professions for a number of years. Uh, how have you, you yourself and how have you helped uh, students kind of understand this and navigate this where you you do often have policies and decisions that are being made by people who are not necessarily, uh, uh, or not, certainly not healthcare professionals. Uh, but then you, you're in an environment where you often have doctors and nurses and and uh, that have to make decisions uh, that are very very critical. And I, I just uh, I think that's a a question that helps our viewers to understand how the the, the sometimes these two realms, the political legal legislative realm and the and the healthcare realm uh, are are can be both at tension can work together uh, but then also you know be challenged to to get through a crisis like this uh, thank you for that question nursing we we start teaching nursing students early on um, that they are patient advocates that their their um, their job is to intercede for their patients, to advocate for their patients. And um, some of us are a lot more uh, aggressive with that than others, but in in most situations, in, in the situations that I've heard of from students and family members, um, they're having to advocate quite boldly in some situations. Um, and I, I feel like... Um, in today's in today's healthcare policy world and whatnot, there tends to be you know um, a big disconnect in some ways between administration and um, people on the front lines. I think that um, it's difficult because healthcare is an expensive uh, integrate. You know, it's a politically charged area. And when you're a nurse and all you're worried about is your patients, sometimes you don't see all the, the forest for the one tree. But at the same time, your tree is is what's important to you. And 
that's what makes nursing one of the professions that is the most trusted professions because frequently patients uh, see their nurses advocate for them um, quite boldly. But I do feel like there's going to have to be some uh, some reexamination of current policies, current uh, focuses for healthcare. And again, we need to go back to the fundamentals. We need to go back to, um, we talk about evidence-based practice in nursing quite a bit. And um, some of what ha happens in nursing has been uh, handed down to us for years. And there may, some changes have happened because there wasn't evidence to prove it. Well, there wasn't evidence to disprove it either. And I feel like that common sense is going to make us make some decisions that are uh, beneficial for both parties, yet keeping our patients uh, focused on our patients. I don't know how am I I'm trying to be very uh, politically correct in some ways because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and 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 really, you know, too, it's it's it, you're showing that that this is such a very challenging area, and I, and I think one thing that we we see is that people don't often understand uh understand it at this depth that that you've experienced where uh this there are always challenges there's not things that are easily resolved it, it's an ongoing process as we uh as as in our modern society as things change as we face crises like this uh and uh, and that that's that's part of it i mean in the public policy realm uh, the process never stops. It may be delayed because something's not front and center like it is at other times, but but there's always something churning, something working, something, some challenge, some issue, some problem uh, that has to be addressed. And and that can not be so. Uh, I mean, that is certainly true. Uh, I would think in uh, in in healthcare. Uh, in 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 closing uh, uh, today uh, uh, with our time with you, um, we we hear we're hearing all kinds of things, especially with the, the attempts to kind of open up uh get the economy uh, moving in certain areas where it's been struggling um what would be your uh sound advice uh, to our listeners uh as as we proceed what are the things that that they should be doing uh to keep themselves safe uh, to protect others um uh just really kind of cutting through all the chatter out there about all the different uh, things that that are being said but what do you see are the most essential things that we all should be doing uh, to uh, uh, to get through this. Well, I, even even though next week we're going to have some of the restrictions lifted, I still feel like it's important for people, particularly people that are going to be around vulnerable populations, um, to continue the social distancing, to continue the the avid hand washing, to continue to um, drink water, get rest, eat a balanced diet. Um, Spend some time outside. Let the UV light um, help get rid of some of the pathogens you potentially carry on your body. Um, go back to trying to exercise to help with stress relief. Because right now, some of the things that I think that you know are going on are people are, are being unable to conduct your life in the, the manner that you're used to as a stressor. And so people are needing to um, exercise. Exercise does not have to be, you know, running in place um, or killing yourself, doing jumping jacks or whatever in your living room. It can be outside 
cleaning your yard. It can be planting vegetables. It can be doing something that you get dual purpose out of. Um, it, but we need to, you need to do everything possible to keep your immune system up. So drink lots of fluids, get your eight hours, eat a nutritious diet. If you've got vitamins, take them. People are great about buying vitamins. They're horrible about taking them. Um, <laughs> and uh, just, but continue to wash your hand, continue to do the social distancing. If you see somebody that looks ill, um, avoid them. Uh, that doesn't mean don't get them help. If they look ill, maybe call somebody for them, call EMS, whatever. But um, unless you're trained to take care of ill personnel and you have the PPE available to take care of it, then help provide them assistance in a different manner. But um, you've got the best thing people can do is it's almost like we're on an airplane and it's and the um, O2 bags have dropped down. Put yours on first so that you can help the person next to you. So um, please continue to practice these so the social distancing in a respectful and um, gentle manner. I mean, in some ways, we're seeing people that are doing the social distancing that almost looks combative. We, we're not fighting each other. We're fighting a pathogen. So, um, and we also need to keep that in mind. So um, I don't know. Well, that, yeah, that's great. I mean, that that, that just reaffirms uh, that we we just got to continue to do that, and we need to do it in a way that uh, uh, helps ourselves uh, and not not see the another person as uh, as the enemy, but uh, as the virus uh, as that. And uh, so, thank you very much. This is very informative. It helps. I think it helps our listeners engage in a way uh, that uh, that we we really don't often see and understand of, of what's happening both in educating uh, uh, healthcare professionals, but also in what, what, they're, what they're facing and, and challenged with and the impact that we're going to see uh, going forward. This, uh, Dr. Samantha Pell, uh, faculty member in the College of Health Sciences and Human Services uh, here at Tarleton State University. Uh, we thank you for joining us today and we ask all of you to stay tuned. We're going to take a brief a commercial break, and we will be back for more on politics. Thank you. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but Cogliamaro have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogliamaro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogliamaro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. This is Dr. Eric Morrow, and I welcome you back to On Politics. I uh, hope you uh, following our coverage of the pandemic and, and connecting with people in different areas and professions uh, to help us understand that. And we we're glad to have Dr. Samantha Pell on with us today. For this last segment of the, of the show today, I want to turn to back to the election, uh, back to the election process, uh, specifically because yesterday, the former vice president and presidential hopeful uh, Joe Biden uh, had uh, come out and said that uh, President Trump may try to delay uh, the election in the fall. Now, there, there's not been any specific 
comments to that in that direction uh, by the president. Uh, most of this was looking at uh, the uh, cutting in funding to the U.S. Postal Service, uh, a uh, something that's already very critical in election cycles for mail-in ballots for people who are. Uh, absentee people in the military and so on. Uh, but that could become even more critical this year uh, because of the pandemic and because of how elections may need to be handled. Uh, I'm not following that line at this point. I think there's enough people out there that are saying, hey, look, we're going to have an election. This would be cer certainly historic if the election was postponed uh, in, in any way. Uh, but I think the, 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 challenge here is for all of us to understand that this is an election year like we've never seen in, in recent times. And that is because there are things that are weighing in on the timeline leading up to the election. And these are things that are likely to more to have an impact, uh, not so much the, the, the budget of the U.S. Postal Service or the aspirations of really of either candidate. Uh, we're looking at some real substantial process issues here uh, that I think everybody needs to see and, and be aware of and see how this, this plays out. Uh, one for right off the bat is that we still have 16 states that have delayed their primaries. Okay, so by now in this process, uh, we are uh, more than uh, two thirds of the way through the primary process. Uh, and now you have states as far back as, um, uh, well, there were changes back in March and April where you had Alaska that, that went voted by mail. Uh, Wyoming voting by mail, uh, Ohio, their election is coming up, but it was postponed for March. Uh, and then you look at states like Nebraska, Oregon, Hawaii, uh, Delaware, Indiana, Maryland, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, all have moved to June, uh, the Virgin Islands, Georgia, Kentucky, New York, uh, Virginia, congressional primaries moved late in June. Uh, so all of this presents significant process challenges, not that they can't be overcome, but but this has had a significant impact on the primary process and, and certainly the campaigning that would lead into those primaries. And this is not just looking at this at the level of the presidential race, but in each state, you have congressional elections, you have elections for the Senate, uh, you have elections for state uh, governors and, and representatives and senators. And so local, all the way down to the local level, there, there's a ripple effect here, an impact uh, in terms of the normal election process and certainly the campaign process. Uh, we'll have a little more explanation as to how this is impacting Texas, at least the, the Republican Party in Texas, and we'll hope to follow with the Democratic Party in a few weeks. But uh, next week on the show, uh, we hope to be welcoming the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, James Dickey, uh, to talk about this process and talk about uh, the challenges that have been created by the pandemic in terms of the primary process in Texas leading up to the state convention uh, and then the national convention. So be sure to join us uh, uh, next week for that. But that is, is very clear that the primary process has been disruptive, uh, disrupted, I should say, the virus has been disruptive uh, and that this is going to have a significant impact uh, on the outcomes of elections. The second thing that I wanna bring as, as I've already alluded to are campaigns. This has radically changed campaigning. Uh, there are not open campaign events, and there may not be in this election cycle. We have to look at the reality that uh, this uh, pandemic and its possible movement in the months ahead is going to very much limit what uh, any candidate for public office can do. And so this 
definitely affects the presidential candidates, uh, Donald Trump as the incumbent, Joe Biden as the prospective nominee of the Democratic Party, and their ability to have mass crowds to speak to thousands of people at a time, uh, to get out and shake hands, uh, to get out and engage with the public, and to try to use the campaigning and, and its role in an election cycle uh, in order to uh, win the election. So that, that's going to be very, very challenging uh, in the months ahead. The third area that we've come back to, we've talked about this several times on the show, and we looked at it more in depth on a local level uh, with our show last week, is the economic impact. Uh, we, we still don't know where this is going. We know it's substantial. We look at 26 million so far that have filed for unemployment. Uh, we look at the uh, industries that have been in, in, impacted the most, uh, where their uh, revenues are going to be non-existent. Uh, we just don't know what the long-term economic impact. And, and as we've said before, and as, as, as many of our listeners probably know, economics have a, a tremendous impact on an election outcome. And so a lot of this is going to be into those final weeks before the election uh, to see where we are and how government is responding, how elected officials are responding, how people feel about where they are and what what's happening, the stability around them and what is needed. You know, what Who's hearing what in terms of the plans that candidates have uh, to get us beyond this economic crisis and to continue to work through what may be the uh, different waves or, or uh, the impact uh, of uh, this pandemic. So economics, again, very, very critical and, and, and does, and certainly will have an impact. Uh, the, the fourth area that I look at uh, with this is the virus itself. So we've already mentioned that several times, uh, not just what's happening now, uh, but some are looking to the fall and to the flu season, uh, which is right there with uh, our November election, uh, that that may have an impact, especially if we look back to the uh, influenza pandemic of the early 20th century, and we know that there was a much more significant impact in the second round uh, when the when the virus was uh, spread uh, um, spread further and 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 uh, infected more people uh, and led to more deaths and so on. And so at this point, again, we this is speculation, but it's very likely that we could have a second wave of this. That second wave could be more substantial. And so what do you do uh, in a time like that when, again, social distancing, uh, stay at home and stay safe? How do you conduct elections, uh, especially in heavily uh, populated areas where uh, in recent uh, elections we've seen lines? Uh, so here you have people that are not social distancing. Here you have an environment in which you have uh, campaign or election staff, workers, people who are facilitating the election uh, that, that are going to be in proximity uh, with other people. Uh, these, are, these are radical structural changes, uh, in, especially in states that have high populations uh, that are, are, uh, have, have a long tradition and continue to of uh, people going to polling locations uh, in order to vote. So we just don't know where we're going to end up with that. That's a significant a challenge uh, that's so much an unknown is where does this cycle and where does this fall uh, in relation to the time of the election? Uh, so th these are, are critical areas that we're going to be looking at and following uh, over the months ahead. 
Uh, but I want to add another area to this, and this is one where many people may think, okay, well, if there's all these concerns and there's all these impacts that may affect the November election, why not switch to digital or possibly even um, uh, mail-in voting? I mean, we have that in some states. We have uh, Wyoming was a recent example. Uh, Oregon has a, a mail voting, voting by mail, you should say, uh, where people get sent a ballot and they can then uh, fill it out, uh, sign it, send it in, uh, and they conduct elections uh, that way. We see Alaska did that. What we see is that that this has worked and has uh, been a proven process in states that have smaller populations. So I, I mentioned that because you look at the expense of not only transitioning to that type of, of election, uh, away from where there's already equipment and there's already um, uh, resources in place uh, to something that's completely different. Uh, and so that is moving to needing a structure where the mail can be processed, ballots can be delivered, ballots can then be received and processed and checked and then entered. Um, this is all a different uh, setup in terms of security and in terms of process than what we do now. So you look in a state like Texas, where we have uh, 30 million, almost 30 million people. Uh, we have millions of registered voters. Uh, we are looking at a very massive scale to be able to conduct an election uh, uh, through uh, mail-in ballots. And the challenge too would also be, especially in a uh, time of economic hardship like this, where do you find the resources to do that? Uh, already when we see the potential that the state budget in Texas uh, may be cut uh, due to lost oil revenue, due to economic recession, uh, where, do, where do these resources come from to gear up that kind of operation that would be ready in time uh, by the November election? I often talk about this as an option for voting in my government classes, uh, where we look at, well, what are other ways that we could do this? And it's interesting, some of the ideas that, that come up, uh, of course, ma uh, voting by mail is, is one, uh, but another one is digital voting, voting electronically, where you log on. Some would say, well, if we can uh, uh, secure our financial information and our bank accounts and interact with those online through secure systems, uh, why can't we do that with voting? Why couldn't we just log on uh, and identify ourselves uh, and be able to, to do that uh, uh, digitally? Uh, so that, that is something I think that is, is in development. I think we, we've seen it uh, attempt to apply it in some primaries. One of the critical thing that has to happen is it has to work. I mean, the, the failure of a system like that to work in an election erodes uh, the trust in our ele election system. And so for a general election, specifically a presidential election, uh, that's something that we really can't afford as a country. We've got to have something that we know um, – uh, really works. I mean, some of you may remember the movie Man of the Year where uh, there was a nationwide electronic voting system in place and there was something wrong in the code uh, that let one person win. I think it was Robin Williams was the main character there over uh, the other uh, candidates and it was because of that glitch. Uh, so there, there, the, the, it has to work. It also has to be it's challenging because our ele national elections are not coordinated across the country. It's a state by state uh, issue where each state sets up the guidelines, the process, the manner in which it will conduct its elections. Uh, 
Uh, so we're, we're really not there yet to say that we could have some kind of digital electronic system that would be secured enough that we know that would work. Uh, but we could see that and see more trials of that uh, in the future. Uh, so what we're looking at now is a scenario where we could have a, uh, a pandemic uh, situation like we're seeing now uh, coinciding with a general election and then having each individual state trying to adapt in whatever way it can uh, to conduct the election. Uh, now, that does present a case to say, well, then could we delay the election? Uh, could that be a possibility uh, that uh, the election could be postponed uh, until uh, such a time when it could be more feasible to conduct it? I think at this point we can ask that question. We can surmise, you know, the process that we might go through, uh, whether that be Congress making a decision or the courts. Uh, but at this point, I don't think there's momentum behind that. I think it's one of those things that it's a wait and see, but it's also on the other side of it, uh, just as we are in higher education, just in other areas are preparing uh, for fall and knowing that we may have different and challenging circumstances we have to deal with, uh, that, that we are prepared to conduct a general election or to make that decision uh, as to what we do, but make the decision not based on politi political expediency, uh, or uh, I would say in this case during this virus to to use that as a as a, a political tool to gain advantage as much as to seriously look at uh, the, the the right decision that needs to be made uh, in terms of upholding the stability and the, the importance of elections in our democratic system while at the same time ensuring the viability uh, of the outcome. I think that's where, where trust, where our commitment to our system of governance and our system of, of transition of power is very, very critical. Uh, those, those are the perspectives that need to be looked at much more than say uh, uh, the uh, feasibility uh, of doing one thing or another. What, what will support uh, those outcomes uh, in conducting the election, whether it's held in November uh, or due to a, a national crisis like this, uh, it is delayed. So thank you for joining us today on politics. Uh, glad to be with you each and every week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. As I said, please look forward to joining us uh, next Sunday at noon, where we will interview the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, uh, James Dickey, and talk about the primary process and the challenges in that process during the midst of this pandemic. Thank you again for joining us and we look forward to being back with you next week. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.